It is good to be back here. Last week, I was sicker than a dog. I was in bed five days in a row of NyQuil. Oh, it was bad. I don't know if anybody else has had that, but it was terrible. So hopefully nobody else gets it. Um, if you were here last week, Josh Baker preached, and he kind of ended our series on the book of Acts. And we had been in the book of Acts for just over a year. Uh, we took a small break, but it took us about a year to get through the book of Acts. And I think one of the things that Josh said last week is we probably could have spent like five years in it. It's just so, so rich. Well, today we're going to start a new series, and we're going to start this series really talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm not sure if you know this, but five weeks from today is Easter. And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time really diving into the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But we decided to do it in a little bit of a different way. I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes, like even if I'm just reading through the Bible, I can read the same translation. And I've read it so many times that I just kind of skim over what it says. Like I miss things. And if I read a different translation, there's times where I, I see something, I'm like, oh my goodness, that was been, that's been in there. And then I go back to what I've been used to reading and I see it and it's like, oh wow, how, how have I missed that? And it's the um, same type of way I think with Easter. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard so many sermons on the story of Easter. You've probably um, taught it to your kids or you've taught it to your, or your parents taught it to you. Like we're so familiar with the story, but I think sometimes we kind of gloss over parts of it. And so what we're going to do for this series is we're going to look at some of the lesser known characters surrounding the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So over the next probably eight to ten weeks, we're going to talk about people like Pilate and Herod. We're going to talk about Barabbas. We're going to talk about the criminals who are crucified next to Jesus. We're going to talk about a centurion. We're going to talk about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We're going to talk about Thomas. We're going to talk about the women. And at the end of the series, we're going to talk about all the different times that Jesus appears after he rises from the dead. And so I'm really excited about where we're going in this. And um, our hope is, is not just that we better understand the story by looking at some of the lesser known characters, but that it really grows us, shapes us, challenges us, and encourages us in the process. Today in particular, we're going to be talking about the Jewish leaders of the day. They come by a lot of names, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but we're going to talk about really the story of Jesus' death, specifically looking at the Jewish leaders. So today we're going to talk about who those Jewish leaders are, what steps they take to, to have Jesus killed, and then we're going to talk about why do they go to such profound measures to see to it that Jesus is killed. So that's where we're going. Before we, we, before we do this, um, if you don't know a ton about the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are really where you can find the most information about Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. And, and so throughout this series, we're going to really be looking at Matthew chapter 26, 27, 28, Mark chapter 14, 15, 16, Luke chapter 22, 23, 24, John chapter 11, 18, 19, 20, and 21. But normally, if you're here, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take one passage and we'll read that. Well, God has given us such a vast amount of information in these four different books, so a lot of the sermons may seem like we're all over the place, and it's because we're kind of taking each part that's given to us in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and we're going to kind of interweave it to be able to tell the story as well as we can. Now, there are some people um, that would say that if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find some discrepancies. You find some things that don't seem to line up. Um, and it, at first glance, I think that can seem true, but I want to share with you, I've shared this before, but I want to share a quick story and, and give an explanation as to why I think that's the case. Um, several years ago, um, we lived still in Miamisburg, and I was, decided to warm my car up. 
I backed the car out of the, into the driveway and I went in the house to uh, make some phone calls on our cordless phone. So it's been a couple years ago. I went to do that and I hear this and so I turn around and I look and I see a man in my car stealing my car. So that's not good, right? Like it's not like the way you want to start your day. So I start watching and the guy drives down the street, slams on the brakes, a lady jumps in the car and they continue to peel out and leave. If you would have asked three different people in our neighborhood what happened, one might say, there was a guy that stole Brian's car. That's true, right? Someone else might have said there was a guy and a girl that stole Brian's car. Is that true? Yeah. And someone else might have said there was a guy that stole Brian's car. He stopped four houses down, girl jumped in, then they took off. Is that true? Yeah. And so some of the things that we'll see when they appear to be discrepancies, it's actually God giving us this beautiful, rich thing to where we can really understand the story even better. So little soapbox is over. Before we dive into really talking about the Jewish leaders of the day, I want us to be reminded of the, the overview of the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So here is um, my kind of take on trying to take all of these different parts and put it together, as well as lead us up to what we'll be talking about over the next several weeks. The Jewish leaders of the day conspired with one of Jesus' followers named Judas. They agreed to give him 30 pieces of silver if they delivered Jesus to them. When he did, they bound Jesus. They took him in and they tried him. But then they took him to Pilate, demanding that he be killed. Pilate tried him and determined that he was not guilty, but he feared the crowd. And wanting to keep the peace, he sentenced Jesus to die and released Barabbas, a known murderer. Jesus was beaten, mocked, and then sentenced to death. He was nailed on a cross next to two criminals. Just before Jesus died, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. A centurion saw all of this and said, surely he was the Son of God. But it was too late to listen, for Jesus was dead and his followers had scattered. A rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, feeling bad for all that Jesus had gone through, took Jesus' body and buried him in his own tomb, along with a man named Nicodemus. Three days later, the women went to the tomb, but the stone had been rolled away, and angels had declared that Jesus had risen. The Jews thought that the disciples had stolen his body, but he had risen, and he appeared to many over a period of 40 days. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we go through this um, time today, I pray that you will open our minds, open our hearts, that you would reveal ourselves um, to you and to ourself. God, that you would um, cause us to see a more clear, more beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first and foremost, who are these Jewish leaders? They go by lots of different names. And, and if you read through Matthew chapter 26, it says this, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But if you were to read Mark's account, Mark says it's the chief priest and the scribes that do this. And if you read in John's account, it says the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council. So just in looking through those four, kind of interweaving them together, we're going to see chief priest, elders, high priest, Caiaphas, scribes, Pharisees, and the council. And I don't know if you're like me, but you're like, what in the world do I do with all of this information? 
And so I want to take just a minute to talk about that. Because other places, if you read, you'll read about the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the officers, the crowd, and the Jews. And I think it gets confusing. So when we talk about the Jewish leaders of the day, what are we actually talking about? So first is this. There's a high priest. It goes all the way back to the time of Moses and Aaron. Aaron was the first priest. And the priest had this big job, and they were to act on behalf of men in their relation with God. And they were kind of a go-between. That was the priest's job, to be a go-between. The priest's job, not only to be, a, to be a go-between, but also his job was to oversee the temple, and before that, to oversee the tabernacle. And then, once a year, his job was to go into the Holy of Holies and to kill an animal, sacrifice an animal on behalf of his sin, and then kill another animal on the behalf of all of the people of Israel's sin. So we have this guy who needs to be purified himself before he can purify the people. And so that's really what he does. But he has another job, and it's that he basically lives in the temple. His job is to oversee the temple. He's got to be pure and spotless. So he does all these ritual bathings. And so that's who we have as the high priest. And in Luke chapter 3, it tells us that this all takes place um, in the, in the, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. So, so Caiaphas is our high priest. we got this high priest whose, whose job is to go between the people. His job is to offer sacrifice for the people, to act, offer sacrifice for himself. And then not long after this, Moses' time, Moses tells Aaron, or excuse me, God tells Moses and Aaron to appoint 70 elders to bear the burden of the people with him. So we have our high priest, but he gets an, a grouping of people to help him. He gets a group of 70 elders so these elders become known as the council, or become known as the Sanhedrin. They become known as the chief priests. And so we have these 71-member people. we got the high priest and the council working together as the Jewish leaders of the day. And this is an extremely oversimplistic view of this for my simple mind and hopefully some of yours as well. So we have this 71-member team. And now in this team of people, this council... It's made up of different type of people. Not everybody agrees on everything. It's kind of like how it is now. You have different um, people who have different theological understanding of things. They disagree theologically. And we have the same thing here. So the Sanhedrin, the council, it has two different sets of people. It has people who are called Pharisees and people who are called Sadducees. So Pharisees, they're people who are all about not only the written law, but also this oral law. There was this kind of law that was passed down from priest to priest to priest. And so they're big on this oral law. They're kind of among the people. They're kind of the people who are watching and they see you doing something that's against the law, so to speak. They, they'll be real quick to point it out. Like, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. You're breaking the Sabbath. You're doing this. And so that's Pharisees. Then you have the Sadducees, who they don't really care about that, and they don't believe in life after death, whereas the Pharisees do. So they kind of have this more, excuse me, the Sadducees. So they have this more just live for now type of mentality. It doesn't really matter. Just eat, drink, and be merry. And so inside of the Sanhedrin, the council, the chief priests, you have these two groups of people that are almost like different denominations that ne almost never agree, but they do agree on one thing. And it's that Jesus needs to die. So there we are in our story. We have the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, making up the Sanhedrin, the council, working together with the high priest. That is who we're talking about when we talk about the Jewish leaders of the day. And these Jewish leaders of the day, they take tremendous steps to see to it that Jesus would be killed. You can see as early as John chapter 5, they're already seeking to kill Jesus. 
They don't like what he's saying. They don't like what he stands for. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But then in John chapter 7, they even get to the point where they're so furious about Jesus that they decide, let's get some of our officers, some of the people who work for the council, to go arrest Jesus. They go, and their job, right, it's go arrest Jesus. They get there, and they're like, oh my goodness, this guy is brilliant, crazy, both. They don't really know what to do with them, and so they don't do anything, and they come back, and the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the council, they're like, why didn't you bring Jesus back? And they said, um, no one has ever spoke like this man. And that infuriates them all the more. So then, in John chapter 8, they try to stone Jesus, but they, they don't. They, they, don't get a, they don't get to. They, in John chapter 10, they want to go as far as stoning him, but they don't. Then in John chapter 11, these Jewish leaders, they go as far as saying that if anyone knows where Jesus is, they must arrest him and bring him to them. Well, Judas, one of Jesus' followers, must have heard about this. Because Judas then goes to the chief priests, the, the, the Sanhedrin, right? He goes to them and he says, hey, if I bring Jesus to you, what will you give me? And they're like, well, tell you what, if you bring Jesus to us, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And it says that they were glad that they made this agreement with Judas. And so Judas and the chief priests, right, the council, the Sanhedrin, they kind of confer together to figure out how can we do this? How can we get Jesus and bring him in? And they come up with a plan. And the plan is, is that Jesus will be doing what he does and Judas will be with him. And then Judas will leave there. We'll go get this grouping of people, what's known as a great crowd crowd from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, a crowd that's made up of officers of the temple and of elders. So they go and they find Jesus that would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says that they come with lanterns and torches and weapons, swords and clubs. And then Judas comes forward and he gives Jesus a kiss. And by that kiss, they know this is Jesus. This is the one that we need to capture. This is the one that we need to arrest. And they arrest him. This band of soldiers comes and grabs Jesus and binds him. If you know the story, before that can happen, Peter cuts off one of the guy's ears. I would have loved to have seen this. And Jesus picks up just the ear off of the ground and puts it back on the guy's face, and they're still going to arrest him. Like, if it would have been me, I'd have been like, yep, nope, nope, I'm done. I'm out. Forget it. I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. But they arrest Jesus, they bind him, and they bring him in. And so think about this. The Jewish leaders of the day, they have already tried to kill him, attempted murder. They have now entered into an agreement to pay off one of his followers, bribery. They've now captured him and bound him, battery. And now they're taking him against his will, although he submits to their authority, if you will, and goes with them, kidnapping you have these Jewish leaders that are committing tremendous crimes because they want to see Jesus killed. But they go to further efforts. Um, in Mark chapter 26, 57 through 68, this is what the Bible says. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the, and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following them at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest 
And going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but none was found, though many false witnesses came forward. And Mark adds to this that their testimony didn't even agree. So you have all these people who are lying and giving these false accusations about Jesus, but their, their, their things don't agree. It doesn't make any sense. And so here they are now also committing perjury and forgery and defamation. They're going to tremendous efforts to see that Jesus would be killed. At last, it says in Matthew chapter 26, two came forward and said this, that this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Then he goes on, he says, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You know what Jesus is saying to him? You're asking me if I am the Christ. You're asking me if I'm the Messiah. I am. That's what Jesus is saying in that. He's saying, I am. I'm exactly who you're saying that I'm not. I am him. I am he. But it tells us that from that point forward, what happens is, I tell you from now on, you'll see the Son of Man, as Jesus says. But then the high priest tore his robe, which, by the way, tremendous wrong thing to do here. He has these pure, holy garments, and he just rips his pure, holy garments. And then he says, this man has uttered blasphemy. What is your judgment? And who he's speaking to in this moment is that council, right? He rules with this council. So the high priest is ruling that it's blasphemy, tears his, his garments, and then the other 70 say, yes, we agree, he deserves death. Then it goes on, and Mark chapter 14 tells us that they cover Jesus' face. And they begin to spit in his face and strike him. They're punching him. They're slapping him. And then they're saying, hey, which one struck you? If you're the Christ, if you know all, which one struck you? So they've gone to this tremendous effort of bringing Jesus in, this tremendous effort of committing various crimes to get him there. They're mocking him, beating him, saying that he's speaking blasphemy. Then now they're adding to what they've already done, assault. They attempted him, they attempted, like I said, to stone him multiple times, but legally they're not allowed to. This when we look forward into the book of Acts, Stephen, when Stephen's, like, they, they still weren't supposed to have done that, but it didn't stop them then. But right now, it does stop them. They know that they're not supposed to do this, and so they need more power. So in this day and age, there was basically like a separation of power, if you will. There was, there was the, the religious power, and then there was the state power. And, and, and again, I'm not a history guy, but overly simplistic version of this is the, the nation of Israel, the Jews, had been taken over by Assyria, then Babylon, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And so now the state power is in the Romans' hands, and they still have their religious power, if you will. And so they have their religious power. They can bring him in to try him. They can say that he's guilty, but they really can't do anything about it. And so they need help. So they decide, let's take him to Pilate, who is the governor. And they say, we'll 
kind of have him do our dirty work for him. Let's make him kill Jesus. So up until this point in time, they've taken various steps to see to it that Jesus is killed. They've done attempted murder, bribery, battery, kidnapping, perjury, forgery, defamation, and assault. Now, why do they go to such profound measures to have Jesus killed? Like, if you really think about this, the, in the Old Testament, there's all these things pointing forward so that one day there's going to be someone who's going to fix the problem of sin, right? In the very beginning of the Bible, God creates everything. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's holy, it's amazing. And then in Genesis chapter 3, there's the fall. And everything else in the Old Testament that they would have read, they would have known, is pointing to the fact that one day there's going to be someone who comes to fix all of these problems. It, even in, as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says that there'll be one who will bite the heel, but he will stomp his head all the way from the beginning of the Old Testament, it's pointing forward to that there's going to be a Messiah, there's going to be a king, there's going to be one who comes to fix all of these problems. And the Jews know this. And they're looking forward to a day when a Messiah would come and would fix all of these problems. Why would they kill the one who's saying, I am that guy? It's just, it's crazy to me. So why is it that they want to kill Jesus, I'm going to give us four reasons for today. Number one, they didn't believe. They didn't believe what he said. Like, it sounds simple, but like, Jesus had made these extremely bold claims. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God. It's a simple claim, but it's a bold claim, and they do not believe that that's true. It goes on, and, and Jesus says, um, I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. There's no way for someone to get to God unless you come through me. They didn't believe it. In fact, not only did they not believe it, they rejected that Jesus was anything other than a blasphemer. Jesus had said things like, um, your sins are forgiven. Remember the story of a paralytic. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they, the, this, this group of um, Jewish leaders, they say, who can forgive sin but God? And Jesus says, okay, all right, fair enough. Then get up and walk. And the dude gets up and walks. And so Jesus not only has been making these bold claims, he's been substantiating them. And it's driven these people crazy because they do not believe what he has to say. They reject the notion that he's anything other than a blasphemer. And so in John chapter 15, John chapter 5, verse 18, when it first starts speaking of them wanting to kill Jesus, this is what it says. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus all the more, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, and he was making himself equal with God. So the reason why they go to such tremendous efforts to kill Jesus is because they don't believe that he is who he said he is. They reject the notion that he's anything other than a blasphemer. But it goes further than that. Not only do they not believe what he has to say, they reject him as their king. Like, Jesus has substantiated these things. He's healing people like crazy, left and right. He's doing all these healings, and he's showing, like, I am he. I am the one who was to come. And he's trying to show them and point it to them that he is this, this Messiah. He even goes as far as raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is dead. He's dead as dead, dead. He's in the tomb for three days. He stinks dead. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And the people are like, uh, Jesus, it's going to be awful stinky if we roll that tomb, roll that stone away. And Jesus says, I don't care. Roll the stone away. Roll the stone away. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. 
and the guy gets up and walks out of the tomb. Jesus is not only making bold claims, but he's substantiating his claims. And yet, these Jewish leaders, they reject him as their king. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to test him. They're asking him all these different questions about divorce, about the resurrection, about taxes, about the Sabbath, about how you're supposed to wash your hands and when. They ask him all these questions about where his authority comes from. How is he doing the things that he's doing? They ask him what the greatest commandment is, who his neighbor is. They ask him about fasting. They're just drilling him with all of these different questions. And Jesus is answering it every time. They're just stupefied. Like, what do we say back? The thing is, is they can't argue with him. So they reject him. They don't like what he has to say, so they just reject him as their king. It goes on that Jesus has answered their questions so well, they have nothing to say. It says that no one dared him ask him any more questions from that point forward. But they've rejected him as their king. John, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 30, it says that they reject the purpose of God for themselves. So we have these guys who they hate Jesus so much, they're, they're so after him, they want to see that he's killed, and so, so far, it's because they don't believe him, it's because they re reject him as their king, and number three, they really believe that he was a threat. That's why they're going to such tremendous efforts to see that Jesus is killed. They, they're, they're worried about two things. One, if all of the, the Jewish people begin to follow them, then we have a problem, right? Like we have the temple and we have all this stuff and if everybody leaves here, we're gonna, like it's just us and who can we boss around if no one's here to boss around? Like so they're, they're kind of concerned about it but they're also worried as John 11 tells us is that if all those people begin to follow Jesus, then the Romans won't allow them to still have their religious power. They'll come and they'll take it away. And so the Jewish leaders are concerned about the people following Jesus but they're also worried that they're gonna become nothing. They see Jesus as a tremendous threat. In John chapter 12, it says they, they felt like that the whole world was going after Jesus. They also felt, felt like Jesus was a threat because when he was telling parables, they felt like he was threatening, that he was insulting them. And they felt, felt threatened by this. Like Jesus, when he's saying these things and when he's calling things out as wrong, he's kind of implying that more than implying that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, are guilty of the very thing that he's telling that people should not do. So they see Jesus as this tremendous threat. So they don't believe what he says. They reject that he's anything other than a blasphemer. They reject him as king. They're threatened by him. And number four, the reason why I think they go to such tremendous efforts to see that Jesus is, would be killed is they want a king of their own imagination. They want a king who will do what they think should be done, when they think it should be done, how they think it should be done, and with whom it should be done. They hated that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. They hated that he would allow the dirtiest of dirties to touch him. If you remember the story, there was a woman who was thought to have been a prostitute, comes into the room where Jesus is. Jesus is sitting in a chair, and she comes into the room, and she falls at his feet, and she begins weeping. And her tears fall onto Jesus' feet. And she does what you're not supposed to do in this culture. She takes her hair down. And she uses her hair to clean his dirty feet. Like the, the humility that that takes 
is unbelievable. And the religious leaders, they say, if Jesus knew what kind of woman was touching him, the fact is he knew exactly what kind of woman was touching him. He knew it was a woman who had seen how guilty she was, had seen how dirty she was on the inside, and she needed someone greater. There she is washing Jesus' feet with her hair, and they hated it because they wanted a king of their own imagination. Now, when we read through the story, the, the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, I think it's really easy for us to see people like the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. We see these Jewish leaders and we think, man, they are so stupid. Like, here's Jesus. Here's the Messiah right here doing all these powerful and wonderful and amazing things. Like, and you don't believe? You reject him as your king? Like, what is wrong with you? You saw him as a threat? He wasn't a threat? And you, you want a king of your own imagination? But that's crazy because you have this king who's perfect and holy and wonderful right here before you. Like, what is wrong with you? That's what we do. But I think this story should show us something. It should show us that there was a problem with the high priest. This high priest who in essence pushes for Jesus to be killed, is the very one who's supposed to make sacrifices on his behalf and on others' behalf. There's a problem with the high priest. There's also a problem with the chief priests, those who are supposed to lead, these elders. They're supposed to know what the word says and be prepared for the Messiah, and they, there's a problem with them. But I think that this story, it's not, it's not just a story. I think that this, this truth about the Jewish leaders should show us something else too. You know, the Bible teaches that there's no temptation that has ceased you but what is common to man. And so here's the fact. These Jewish leaders do these unspeakable things. And we read it and we think, how stupid are they? But the fact is, is we are no different. We're really no different than them. If we're open and we're honest and we're real... How many of us could admit that we've fallen in the trap of the enemy where we don't believe what Jesus says? Maybe we say that we believe it, but when you really get down to like the absolute truth of it and you look in our lives, you can see that we don't believe it. You see, really, in all reality, we, we look at and we judge these Jewish leaders, but we're really not any different because we too have seasons, we too have times, we too fall into the trap where we don't believe what God says. We don't really believe when you are free, you are free indeed. We don't really believe that. We don't really believe, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're really no different. We too can reject God as our king. We can say, yeah, God, I'll follow you anywhere you want me to go. Oh, there? Yep, nope, not going. Is there air conditioning? Nope, nope, I'm not going. The thing is, is we too don't want to God to be king. We want to be the king of our own lives. We want to be king of our own time, of our own talents, of our own treasures. We're really no different than the Jewish leaders, because we too have seasons where we don't believe what God says. We too have times where we reject God as our king. There are other times where we think that God poses a threat. I'll be real, real. 
There are often times that I almost don't want to go and sit before God reading what he says in his word. And you know why? Because what if he calls me out of my comfort zone? What if, he, what if he leads me in a way that I don't want to go to a place I don't want to go to, a people I don't want to go? That's like with Jonah, right? Jonah, the story of Jonah. He didn't want to go to those people. And really, how often are we the same where we don't believe what Jesus says? We reject him as king. We think that he poses a threat. And, and here's the deal. I'll be real. He, he does pose a threat because God doesn't allow us to be all-powerful. God doesn't allow us to have total control. I know a lot of us, myself included, we live in such a way like we are the ones who control. and We, we want to control every little thing. And the reason why we do that is because we view that Jesus is a threat. The reason why you want to be in control, the reason why I want to be in control is because we're, we're doubting the fact that he is in control or that he, the way he is in control is going to be good for us. We're really no different. We also can fall into the trap where we really want a king of our own imagination. We want a king who will save who we think he should save, when he should save them, how he should save them. We want a God who, we want him to heal who we think he should heal, when we think he should heal them, how we think he should heal them. And if we're really, really real, there's also people that we do not think that he should save. If someone has committed this crime, Jesus should not give them forgiveness. We all have that line. The fact is, is all of us are just like the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. We're just like the Jewish leaders. We, we don't really believe. We reject him as king. We think that he poses a threat. We want a king of our own imagination. And I think that the story of Easter, the, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus, it should point to us and show us that there is this huge warning that we fall into the same patterns that they fell into. There's another threat, though, another warning that I think that we must heed to. Here's what it is. We left off in our story that, that, that they had bound Jesus and they had taken him to Pilate. Remember that? So here we go. We got the Jewish leaders. They've bound Jesus. They've brought him to Pilate who's the governor, he's a Roman, he's a Gentile, he's a non-Jew. So they bring Pilate to, or they bring um, Jesus to Pilate, and then they're staying outside the palace, and they're like, hey, Pilate, come out. And Pilate's like, just come on in, bring him in. Come on in, guys. And they're like, no, 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 no. you got to come out here. And Pilate's kind of like, what are you talking, you got to come out here? You guys are crazy. I'm not coming out there, you come in here. Oh, no, 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 you guys, you got to come out here. Here's why. John chapter 18, verse 28. They wouldn't go into governor's headquarters because they didn't want to defile themselves and miss Passover. Think about the insanity of this. They want to be so clean and pure that they can partake of Passover. And Passover is this really big deal. Passover is when God had, had shown that he would, would cover their sins. Passover was this big deal because he also used it to take the people out of Egypt and to go to the promised land. Passover is this huge big deal because it's like the first of the um, beginnings of months. It's this memorial. 
It's also this huge festival. It's like this big feast. So in a way for them, Passover is like a combination of New Year's Day, Fourth of July, and Thanksgiving all into one. Like this is the big shindig. Like you want to be a part of this. But think about the insanity of it is they want to be so pure so that they can partake in Passover that they won't go into the governor's house. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile. We can't partake with him. We can't eat with him. And so they want to be so pure that they won't do that. In the meantime... They will attempt murder, bribery, battery, kidnapping, perjury, forgery, defamation, and assault. But it's all right, though. We, we didn't go into the governor's house. How often do we do the same thing? If I just don't watch an R-rated movie, I'm good. If I just don't drink, I'm good. If I just don't, um, you fill in the blank. I don't cuss. I'm good. I don't hang out with those people. I'm good. And we come up with all of this list of just bananas insanity that's not true at all. Like, if I just do this, I'm good. And I can, I'm good. I, I, can, I can partake of the Passover because I didn't do this, 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 or this. All the while, our hearts. All the while, there's stuff in our hearts. The fact is, is that the Jewish leaders of the day, they wanted to appear pure, but they did not care about their hearts. How often can that be the same for us? My private life doesn't matter. My public life does. And if you can see my public life, that I'm a good person, I do the right things, I read my Bible, I know about the Bible, then it really doesn't matter what I do when I'm at home, when the door's closed, when I'm in that room, when I'm, when I'm over here, when I'm there, when I'm having these thoughts, doesn't matter as long as you hear what I'm saying when I'm over here. There's a warning to us when we look at the Jewish leaders of the day, it's that we too look just like them. What all of this is showing us is that we too can fall into that trap where attempted murder, bribery, battery, kidnapping, perjury, forgery, defamation, assault. We too can make false witness. We can use intimidation or manipulation. We too can fall into the very trap that they fell into, which is, was that of a religious straitjacket. The bad news is, is that we look no different than them. But there is good news. We have these people, the Jews, the high priest, the council, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, these religious leaders, right? And they go to such tremendous efforts, they'll do whatever it takes to kill Jesus. They do it because they don't believe him. They reject him as their king. They think he poses a threat. They want a king of their own imagination, and really, we're no different. But the, the good news is this. This points to the fact that the high priest was guilty. The chief priests were guilty. You and I were guilty. But it's also to show us that the old way of the priest doesn't work. There needs to be a better way. There needs to be a better high priest. You see that this high priest was so filled with hate, he did whatever he could to get rid of Jesus. But there's another high priest who is so filled with love, he did whatever he could to bring us near. That's why Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus is speaking and he's looking over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under my wings? But you would not. That's why while Jesus is on the cross being put there by these people that we're talking about. And what Jesus says while he's on the cross, having been put there by the religious leaders of the day, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. You see, they were so filled with hate, they did whatever they could to kill Jesus. And yet there's a better high priest who was so filled with love that he did whatever he could to bring them life. This story of the death of Christ should point us to the fact that the old way doesn't work. The the high priest, it doesn't work. We need a better way. We need a better high priest. Um, I probably could have spent another hour talking about that high priest, but I'll say this. Read the book of Romans, or excuse me, read the book of Hebrews tonight. There, There was a better high priest. There is a better high priest. This is what Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 says. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because it's weakness and uselessness. That old way is weak. It doesn't work. It's useless. And then it goes on in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 through 27 says this. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing the office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, speaking of Jesus. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of his people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself. This text should show us that there's a high priest that it won't work. We need a better high priest. And that high priest is Jesus. Jesus, our high priest, sacrifices once for the sins of all. He doesn't need to make sacrifices every single day, first for his own sins, because he's pure, he's spotless, he's holy. He also gives himself fully. He's one who is merciful and faithful. He is a sympathetic high priest. He is a high priest who reigns forever. My hope and my prayer is that today as we talk through these Jewish leaders, that it reminds us that really we're no different. And that they were in the same need of us as we need a better high priest. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the ways that you love us. God, it is overwhelmingly amazing that you came 
and you died for sinners. It's amazing that you came and that you said, forgive them for they do not know what they do. This very people that put you on a cross. And God, it's amazing to me that even though we do the same type of thing that you look upon us and you say, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. God, your word tells us that you will write um, a new way on our hearts by giving us the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that you will help us be a people who are guided by you and that our lives would look different, not because we try harder, because we work more, because we, we know certain parts about the Bible, but I pray that we would look different because we have you as our high priest and you have written on our hearts. You've turned, as a song we sang before this says, you turned our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. God, thank you for Jesus that although we don't believe, although we reject you as king, although we view you as a threat, although we so often want a king of our own imagination, that you say, come to me. God, we thank you for Jesus. In your awesome and precious name. Amen.